You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, before we get started, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are the people who charitably make sure that I don't resort to selling my own internal organs on the street to fund my crippling content creation addiction. So if you want to make sure that I don't do horrible things on the street, like selling my own adrenochrome, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For just a dollar a month, you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson. So for this week, I have to thank Wednesday Wretch, Kane Nevermore, Scott Varney, Denom, and Ven Winter. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. Now, there are other ways to support the show, and one of the best ways is to just leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts that tells our digital overlords that the show is worth sharing with others. So here is a short five-star review from someone in the United States. They say, so many reasons to love this podcast. Amazing guests, thought-provoking, Stephen's soothing voice and humor. But you'll have to check it out for yourself. Very sweet. And finally, I have to thank my sponsor, which is the Satanic Temple. TV. The Satanic Temple has an incredibly creative and interesting community. So if you're interested in the occult and live streams and lectures and live rituals and feature-length films about weird things like trepanation or the life of Anton LaVey, then go to thesatanictemple.tv and you get one month free using my promo code SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I am delighted to welcome the hosts of my new favorite podcast, Decoding the Gurus, Chris Cavanaugh and Matt Brown. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Stephen. Good to be here. Hi. Hello, Stephen. So uh, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Ah, I'm well. for beauty, Matt. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, okay. I, I have to say, by the way, on that note, Matt, you are uncomfortably good looking. <laughs> you that are music to my ears. You are unexpected. You can't even see my, how, even see my body. No, you know, like you're just the, sticking to my face. So on the show, you're, it's always like, oh, you know, Matt's the elder. Matt is, Matt is the senior in the room. And you're on camera right now. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, he looks like he's in his, like, early 40s like what's going on he looks look gorgeous <laughs> well, early 40s yeah this I'm, is, I'm uh, 47. It's, it's the adrenochrome <laughs> well i'm 47 so um it's not too far off i'm a 47 year old with the body of a 45 year old it's just constant <laughs> that gets me there. okay so like all the all the talk about you being so much older i was i was like oh you know he must be in like his 60s or whatever and then you get on camera and i'm like this is a very good-looking sixty-year-old. Anyway, yeah, Chris okay. Will, Chris, Chris will have his fun. Yeah. Um. So I'm a professor um at uh, Central Queensland University in Australia, 
Um, and uh, my original background is psychology, but I work in statistics and I've worked across a bunch of disciplines, uh, including um, stuff involving strange beliefs like anti-vax, belief in the supernormal, the, the paranormal, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, that kind of led me to link up with Chris to get into the gurus. Amazing. And Chris? Yeah, it, it's okay, Stephen. You don't need to tell the listeners how handsome I am. It's oh, okay. I will. So, I will. You have you have a gorgeous goatee. You have that sumptuous Northern Irish accent. I want you to read me Oscar Wilde as I'm going to bed at night. I, I think the Northern Irish accent is distinctive. At least it has that going for it. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm originally from Northern Ireland. I'm currently living in Japan and like Matt, I'm a academic living in my ivory tower. I am an associate professor in a psychology department in Japan, but I have a dual appointment at Oxford as a researcher. And I work in the kind of area between cognitive anthropology and social psychology and primarily focus on ritual psychology or uh, the cognitive science of religion area but i've also had fairly decades long my interest in conspiracy theorists and alternative health communities and and uh it probably sprung out of you know interest in rationalism and skepticism and those kind of atheism movements um although some of the sheen of those have come off in recent years but uh yeah so so that's my background in a nutshell Awesome. How would you describe Decoding the Gurus, the podcast? I love the, I love I the gesture. The like, you, you got <laughs> this one. <laughs> okay. Um, we, we have this problem with term taking. We never, either we both want to talk or neither of us do. Um, I've forgotten the question. What was it again, Stephen? How would you, so, oh so how do you describe Decoding the Gurus, the podcast? Okay. So we um, were hanging out on Twitter, listening to podcasts as one does, and noticing that there were a bunch of these characters that were sometimes involved in culture war type stuff. They often seem to have like a like a like a special iconoclastic idiosyncratic worldview. They seem to be super duper confident about their point of view, and everyone else was wrong. And they seem to inspire this great, you know, loyalty um, and affection amongst their viewers. So they were a bit different from your typical academic or journalist or public commentator. So that led us to start to look for commonalities between them. Mm. Yeah. So I think that. Sorry. Go on, Chris. No, I was just going to add that we. So like Matt and I as as academic types were initially planning to write an article together on the topic. And then the idea of a podcast spun out of those conversations. But the, one of the distinctive things that we were interested in was like Matt indicated, the people in this space, what we refer to as secular gurus, they kind of fell outside the topic that had been like, existing research had looked at, which would be your kind of more traditional religious gurus or uh, your self-help style gurus or or cult leaders, because the, the people we were interested in kind of didn't fall into those 
traditional roles. Like they didn't have, you know, compounds with devoted followers or that kind of thing. So it, 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 I think partly an internet phenomenon, but also the fact that they were offering primarily secular philosophies was was part of what was interesting to us. Right. So the kind of people you're talking about are people like Jordan Peterson or the Weinstein brothers, Brett and Eric Weinstein or James Lindsay, like very, very online. And it isn't right to just call them public intellectuals. Like when I think of a public intellectual, I think of someone like, you know, I don't know, Steven Pinker, who regardless of whether, you know, regardless of what someone thinks about his takes, the kind of people you're talking about, it's like a bit different. And so you come up, you you came up with this scale that you call the gerometer. And the first point on the gerometer to identify the this new kind of guru, like this internet age guru, is galaxy galaxy brainness. What is galaxy brainness? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's good to talk about the gerometer. Um, one little note just before we do, which is yes, that on our sh- on our show, we um, you know we cast a pretty broad net. Uh, so we uh, cover a bunch of people and we kind of apply the gerometer to them, or, or you know, which we use as just a helpful framework to try to identify um, these sorts of themes, which are a little bit unhelpful, toxic, misleading. So not everyone, everyone we cover, um, we necessarily think, um, has problems, but those people you mentioned, uh, all have problems. Well, (laughs) we, we think they have problems. Yeah. And, and I think that I am the target audience for your show like someone like me is the target audience for your show where you know i'm i'm fairly well read but i don't have any formal training in anything i'm drawn to academia but i don't work in academia i like thinking and i i like conversation and i'm also drawn to outsiders and so i'm i'm always intrigued by say, a Jordan Peterson or by a Brett Weinstein who kind of has this idiosyncratic approach and that just like hits all my buttons. And then it usually takes me a really long time. In some cases, a really long time. I feel like I'm getting better at this. Sometimes it takes me less of a long time to figure out oh there's actually something wrong here like with with brett weinstein yeah sorry go on i'm sorry Stephen. finish Uh, go ahead well you know like for example with brett weinstein i i started listening to his dark horse podcast and by the way uh dear listeners we're going to be deep in the internet subculture weeds here and so Mm -hmm. but hopefully even if you don't know these specific people we're talking about the principles will still broadly apply and you'll still be able to get something from the principles we're talking about so don't be too stressed out if you don't know exactly who we're talking about but so i think in 2020 i started listening to brett weinstein uh his dark horse podcast and i was like okay you know this is interesting he's he's i don't know what i think of everything but you know he has that kind of soothing baritone monotone voice and it's nice to listen to while I go running and I knew about his evergreen incident and so I had that in in the back of my mind as oh you know he's like he's one of those like online free speech bros and 
I eventually it took me a a while to realize like oh he's like peddling anti-vax stuff <laughs> <laughs> and, mm. it, and it and it and it but it was the veneer of intellectualism it was the veneer of of intellectualism and outsiderdom all of the things that really really appealed to me that really appealed to guys like me and for whatever reason i think it is mostly guys and uh so yeah i think that i am part of the target audience for decoding the gurus and your podcast and the gurometer have been very very helpful for me in kind of thinking through this stuff because all of the people who i just mentioned james Lindsay, the weinstein brothers and uh jordan peterson i've had a dalliance with each one of those <laughs> to mm. to a certain degree right so anyway that's like some of my background well, one thing to mention on that, Stephen, is that both Matt and I recognize that there is genuinely appealing parts about their content, you know, whether it be Jordan Peterson offering Jungian analysis of the Bible, or if in the case of Brett Weinstein, you know, talking about evolutionary psychology. And there is occasions where they give decent summaries about our topics. But what Matt and I noticed was that there was a particular episode it's the first episode that we covered on the podcast where eric weinstein uh, interviewed his brother brett weinstein and eric weinstein is someone who like kind of claims to be a theoretical physicist slash mathematician with a theory of everything and his brother is somebody who rose to prominence through uh kind of high profile cancellation event at the evergreen college which i think a lot of people will be familiar with but but since then you know has gone on to promote uh what he presents as an evolutionary lens to understand you know the culture wars and, and modern politics and so on and uh they did this episode i think it was episode 18 of the uh portal which was eric's podcast where brett spun out over the course of a two to three hours this very epic story about him <laughs> uncovering a, a crucial defect in the genetics of lab mice that undermines the safety for the entire drug enterprise, at least in the United States. And that it was like his, his insight was suppressed, shut down by, you know, the corrupt academia and the powers that be. And then his insights actually went on to be stolen and repackaged by a Nobel Prize winner. Right. So it's really, you know, it's, if, if, if big true, if true, big if true. Yes, exactly. Right. But <laughs> but what Matt and I noticed in listening to that is like, actually, the presentation of it was very good. Like if you even yes. in the my case, listening to it, you know, it sounded persuasive and it did sound like there was a misjustice um, that had been carried out. But the only thing that served as a kind of inoculation from their narrative was that if you're familiar with the academic uh, journals and the procedures they're describing you realize that a lot of what they're saying is actually highly conspiratorial not accurate right like they present getting rejected at nature one of the leading scientific journals as like a a kind of a, a big deal and something that signifies a problem and 70 percent of papers get desk rejected at nature. So it is not an unusual occurrence, even if your paper was very good, but they take it as, you know, a nefarious, a nefarious sign um, and so on. So all of which is to mention that 
um, I think what Matt and I hope with the podcast is that we're not saying anybody that gets taken in by secular gurus or whatever is like a, a, an easy rube. It's more that they they do what they do. They tend to do quite well. And for Matt and me, it often looks like they're providing a facsimile of acad academia and of kind of critical thinking, which is persuasive but ultimately kind of intellectual empty calories. And I, I think Matt and I, we have a lot of issues with, you know, there's lots of criticisms that you can level at academia that are, that are valid, um, in, including, you know, the way that, especially at the psychology discipline. But one thing that academia does good is instill critical thinking and an ability to like accept criticism and to engage critically with material and not being the norm. And that's what we try to do with these yes. secular gurus and culture war figures. We're kind of trying to do an academic deconstruction or review, but obviously, you know, with, with humor and, and our personalities more on display than they would be in an academic review. Um, and, but that kind of academic approach to the material. So, so it's good to hear that's, that's kind of where it lands. The grometer is not like a scientific, you know, validated psychometric <laughs> thing or anything like that. Just just like a a bunch of features that are good to think about. And uh, like you can even view them as warning flags that if you see them recurring in the people that you're looking at, you should, you know, you should just be cautious. I think that's what we would advise. Absolutely. No, and I, I love that your approach isn't like, all or nothing. It isn't, you know, time to burn the gurus. Like, let's build a pyre and burn the witches. <laughs> it isn't that, but it also isn't. No, they're they're above criticism. It it's more just like treating them as human beings who have thoughts, who have ideas, and you need to criticize them. And that's great. That's part of the process. So I really appreciate that approach. So with that background uh let's get into some of the characteristics of a guru and talk about ways in which they are applied to hmm. to real life situations so galaxy brainness what is galaxy hmm. brainness okay so this was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh reference to the tim and eric uh you know mind yes expanding <laughs> thing of course and um, I think that's just an excellent metaphor for for what a lot of them do. Like you'll see this sort of deep sounding links between stuff like these disparate concepts, like it could be, be between quantum mechanics and the nature of consciousness and how we should organize society. Or in the case of um, Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying, they will, they will quite explicitly talk about how you can take this evolutionary perspective and use it to understand, you know, virtually anything. Now, you know, another great example of galaxy brainness, I think, is uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, diagrams that you'll find. I was, I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> I, would, I, I haven't read his. I've read his two most recent books, the the twenty four rules total, and but I haven't read the first one yet. And that's the one with all the crazy diagrams. And I look at them, and I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> look. A good heuristic is, is that if your scientific diagram contains a chaos dragon, then you might have to <laughs> rethink it. <laughs> so, or, or, you know, I remember 
watching a lecture by Jordan Peterson several years ago, and he was talking about how this ancient Chinese symbol of two god, two gods, and you, Chris, you are nodding. You know what this is. So the two, I know the helix yeah, representation. Yeah. Well, he said that these two gods, which are in a spiral, that that is actually an ancient rendition of the double helix in DNA. And he just said this, and and. You know, he was so he was doing this like in depth Jungian analysis of this symbol, and then he was like, "Now I know that this is very unusual, but that's 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 unusually high." No, I know that's how I always hear him, like a a very very high pitched voice. But no, he was he was like, "Now I I know that this is I know that this is very unusual, (laughs) but I really believe that this is." A representation of the double helix DNA. So that, and he just said it and then just went on. And I was like, wait, what? That, that drawing all that, of these connections between different things, that is what you are calling galaxy brain. I, I think in the case of Jordan talking about uh, that, like the potential for ancient societies to have intuitively represented the structure of DNA, like, it's it it is like you say that he then is on to the next idea before you know the had you have time to draw a breath and there's another example where they were him and brett weinstein were discussing the hospitals and whether they result in more deaths overall than than helping people right which is an an extreme claim but yeah. they they kind of throw it out there and then they move on and they'll never, you know, return to it or check. And they, Brett said something along the lines of it, it is, you know, if it, it, the fact that and I don't he or Jordan said, I don't know if it, that's true, but it, it could be true. And Brett said the fact that you can even it, it, that it even might be possible is astounding. And you're just like, but it's <laughs> oh, my God, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> which. You, you haven't done the work to show it actually is possible because it isn't, you know, possible from the people who've looked. And uh, I, I think that picking, you know, from a constellation of topics is what we wanted to get at with the galaxy brain. And the other just thing to note in passing, Stephen, is as you noted, when Jordan talks about those things, he will often say just very quickly, you know, of course, this is speculative. We don't have the evidence. Or, or people, my favorite is he says, now this is very complicated and I don't have time to get yeah. into why I think this right now. But anyway, go on. Yes. <laughs> and then those those are uh, we have referred to them as strategic disclaimers. Like it's good to put disclaimers in when you're talking, but there's also a way in which you can use them where they're designed to deflect criticism. Where you can point to them, you know, if somebody says, well, you were speculating that ancient people knew about the structure of DNA and you say, hold on, I just said, you know, this is just an out here thought that I'm having in the moment. And uh, yeah, it's it can I think that can get some people the difference between strategic disclaimers and, and genuine disclaimers. Yeah, yeah. Is it- yeah I, th- I think. Mm. Sorry, go on, go on, Matt. I think you can identify uh, the strategic disclaimer when they they throw it in there, and like Chris says, they just move on and proceed to build upon it as if it were definitely true. And yeah, that kind of building cl- cl- cloud castles is a is a thing we see. 
Is it kind of like, so it sounds like a similar strategy to, oh, I'm just asking questions. Let's just have fun. Mm. Let's just mm. ask questions here. And like Joe Rogan does that all the time where he's like, it could be perfectly possible. Let's just explore this possibility. And then he, he conducts the entire interview as if it is in fact true that, mm. you know, vaccines are, you, you know, that the, the COVID vaccines are, um, ineffective and causing blood clots or whatever, whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly right. And the subjective experience of listening to all of that, because uh, as you mentioned, that they're, they're very eloquent, they're very loquacious, and the ideas are coming thick and fast. Yeah. And if you uh, engage with them in a relaxed, casual, kind of non-critical kind of way, which is, let's face it, that's how that's how we all tend to engage with a lot of content, including myself then it just kind of flows over you and it all sounds good. The ideas are interesting. There's, there's connections being made and it, it feels, you know, interesting. It feels like you're learning something. And by the end of it, it can all feel quite convincing. Um, you actually have to stop and, and pay attention to what's being claimed and how tenuous those links are to realize there's a problem. And, you mentioned at the beginning that you've, you know, personally had a dalliance with a lot of these figures and initially found them quite appealing. And that's true of myself as well. And I think that's a helpful thing for everyone to be aware of. If, if you've been, if you've been taken along for a ride and, and found it all very interesting and enjoyable and thought provoking and so on, then you're not alone. And it doesn't mean you're stupid or that. Absolutely. Uh, or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and also it's, it's kind of a statement about the challenge of apprehending infor information and, and like consolidating and working through information in the digital age. It's like there's just too much. There's just so much. It's saturation. And like my degree is in music and I manage a grocery store. Like I don't know just about anything about all of these topics, about psychology and anthropology, but I find it all very interesting. I, I enjoy listening to it. But as someone with my background, just so if someone sounds convincing, then they are convincing for someone like me. So yeah, no, it, it doesn't mean someone's stupid. It doesn't mean someone's an idiot. It just means that we're in an environment that um, it, where it's hard to parse information. The next feature is cultishness. Describe cultishness. Yeah. Uh, so I, in some respect, this is what people would anticipate, you know, what you would associate with traditional cults, this tendency to create strong in-group and out-group boundaries with the in-group being a special elect who can, you know, see through the mainstream narrative um, and the disparaging of any outside critics as, bad faith, you know, people who are, are just trying to tear down and, and afraid to look at reality um, in the eye. So it's kind of cultivating those strong in-group, out-group bound, uh, boundaries and also uh, things like creating insular communities and uh, narratives that reinforce, you know, why anybody who disagrees with you is part of the uh, conspiracy to silence you. And you know, this, this bleeds into some of the other factors we've identified with conspiracy theorizing and that. But um, yeah, the, the, the main thing is the kind of manipulative cultish tactics and the, the binary in-group, out-group distinctions being reinforced. Yeah. So what does this look like in 
reality. So we can all think of the scary cults like People's Temple or Heaven's Gate or whatever, but what you're talking about, applying to these internet gurus, what does this look like in action? I can give an example. So uh, Eric Weinstein had discords, multiple discords that were created in the week of his podcast because he had quite an enthusiastic community grow. It's kind of normal in the Web 2.0 era, right, where these kind of Patreon communities or Discord communities grow. But Eric was receiving critique and pushback that they didn't like from members within the community. So he went on the Discord, which he would do fairly frequently to interact with the people. And he basically encouraged the community that if they wanted to continue engaging with him and for him to be involved and potentially uh, continue releasing the podcast, they would need to better police the critical comments and the people who were producing low quality criticism. So basically Eric was, you know, threatening to withdraw uh, his access and also potentially end this podcast if they were not better at weeding out what he regarded as low quality criticism. That to me is kind of like fairly straightforward cultish uh, behavior. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was just this week listening to a streamer who I have interviewed on this show before uh, named Vosh. And oh, yeah. Yeah, Vosh Vidya. I, I interviewed him back in 2019. He basically said the exact same thing uh, where people were criticizing him for a fight that he got into with J.K. Rowling and how he did some edge lordy. Uh, sexist humor and jk rowling picked this up and screenshot it and blasted it to all of her fans and was like you know look basically like look at this misogynist and and vosh in this live stream where he was defending himself said i will my mods will ban every single one of you if you criticize this basically i was just like whoa (laughs) it was just like just naked like abs- absolute just, it, and I don't know if I would have noticed that if I wasn't developing this more critical ear for this kind I, of stuff I I think the like with the way that you know Twitter Patreon t- streaming services and and like a whole host of other social media platforms are now the influence of parasocial relationships and this kind of creation of insular communities, it, it really is something that, you know, I think it extends beyond the figures that we are looking at and is it can have very strong impact. So it's not like you need to be a secular guru in order to engage in cultish practices. You do see it across yes. a whole range of areas and, and Twitch streamers um, are, I think, a really ripe area we, we probably will get to them at some point um but but not for a while yeah I, still, I would love i would love to hear your take on the twitch streamers and like hassan and destiny and vosh and all those guys because i was really 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 into all of that and then i don't know it's like i i left twitter for a while and when i left twitter it's almost like 
I rediscovered my personality <laughs> and I, I, re- I discovered that I had my own personality. I, I discovered that I had my own interests and that I was actually less ragey. I wasn't as angry as I used to be. I wasn't as interested in what these streamers were doing. I was more open. I was more curious and I was just a bit more stoic. Like I realized that my rage was just like amped up to a million all the fucking time. And then when I went back and listened to some of these guys, I was just like, what the fuck is this? It, it, it was so bizarre. It was like going through this weird mental detox when I stopped being as active on social media. Um, the, the last thing I'd say about the cultishness thing, uh, Stephen, is that the, you know, one feature about traditional cult leaders is the sheer volume of material that they put out, right? Like yes. hours and hours of talks often every day, right? And, and that's very much the model of of streaming or of the secular gurus you know they tend to have a lot of material out there um and and i i think that in one aspect that you know that's just content creators and what they're doing you know putting putting out content but there there definitely should be a concern about the dynamics that you know if somebody is spending six hours a day watching a stream of someone yes that you know that 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 can have elements which extend beyond just like mere fandom into cultishness yeah no i i agree with that completely and i will eagerly await your series on the streamers on the twitch streamers um so the next feature in the gurometer how do you pronounce it gurometer gurometer uh, you're both nodding your head to be a matter of public debate <laughs> okay uh, you know, pronunciation is something we struggle with we yeah. Okay. So, so this next point is the one that gets me. I think this one is one of my biases, uh, especially is anti-establishmentarianism. Mm. So I just, you know, the other day tweeted out like some of these podcasters out here would interview the fucking Unabomber if he was canceled on a college campus or canceled on Twitter. Like there, there's something about this anti-establishmentarianism that is super attractive for, for me. And even like knowing that about myself doesn't lessen how much I feel that tug. So talk some about anti-establishmentarianism and what that looks like in practice. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so it's a very common theme that we see um, amongst the secular gurus. Um, it's almost like an article of faith that the establishment, the mainstream media, the expert consensus, the blob, whatever, the neoliberal institutions, however you personally want to frame it, um, they're all blinkered, limited, uh, if not totally broken. And they generally agree that they're incapable of grappling with the serious issues. Now, this is very convenient because that creates space for their role, right? As sense makers, as people that can puzzle it out for, for their takes on whatever the case, you know, whatever the case may be, whether it's COVID or Ukraine or, or something else. Um, you know, the institutions are failing, the, the, um, the consensus that's out there that's, that's presented is, is misleading. And the gurus are here to help you see what, what the truth is, right? Um, so, you know, they tend to be attracted to 
issues where there might be a bit of a split between between public opinion and you know scientific or sort of orthodox opinion or one that's just a, like a partisan um, political partisan ideological split as well but yeah and it's sort of connected to the conspiracism that we'll get into I guess because it sort of bleeds into that but um, you know I think people can detect this even if you look at people at an it's just just the your typical Twitter user like you say for all of us like the hot take, the, the 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 heterodox you know not in you know op- opposite to whatever everyone else is saying that's the take that's appealing that's the one that we're all drawn to because no you know it's boring to say oh yeah the the scientific <laughs> and medical advice on covid is basically right go get vaccinated that's boring <laughs> yes absolutely so so also i think that this is particularly pertinent for maybe my specific community which is the satanic uh, the satanic temple because this particular community is very much drawn to outsider figures And while I think TST is pretty good at, you know, weeding out the bullshit and and while I think this community in general is pretty good at practicing skepticism, there is still always the potential for this allure of anti-establishmentarianism of of the outsider to kind of trump our higher reasoning. (laughs) And Mm, so I think that this one is is maybe a particular point of vulnerability for the communities that I swim in. Yeah, I could I could see that, Steve. In fact, I'm I'm interested in in that because I know very little about that community, your community. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would be from, I, I would be happy to answer questions. Maybe we can uh, we can talk about that a bit more at the end, if you'd like. Yeah, but 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 just specifically on this, I think that's a good example, right? Because often, yes. so 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 take me myself, right? Australia is a much more irreligious country than the United States. Yes, um, I, I come from like in my family, my my grandmother was an atheist, right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not even related. Not only am I an atheist, I'm not even related to any religious people. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it's very different for me than, than for somebody who's growing up, say, in a religious traditional part of the United States where there is what feels like uh, a crushing orthodoxy and yes. you can see the problems with it and you can see the issues with that and the natural instinct is to rebel. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And, and and I think what you're pointing to is that, you know, that I mean that there can be healthy aspects to that, of course. Yep. Um, but obviously the you know, that's uh, some degree of self awareness there can um um is helpful to real you know, just just check that one's not going too far in that, I suppose. For sure. Um the next point is grievance mongering. And this one is Okay, so like the first example that comes to mind for me is listening to Eric Weinstein just whine for hours about how the educational system, and it is like this whole malevolent system and like his, you know, his weird vendetta against Ivy Leagues and the Ivy League or whatever, and just like this, this whole system, this whole orchestration against him in particular. And so that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I so I, I think he's a paradigmatic example in part because it's in some ways it's so cartoonish, his portrayal, which is that, you know, not only 
was he not given recognition uh, potentially at the Nobel laureate level? But he also has this belief that, you know, there were secret seminars organized in his department that he was uh, like not informed of because they didn't, you know, want him to disrupt them and all all of these. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it stretches back to his university, but he manages to make almost every world event related to himself and his small group of friends. And this, you know, for most people, that would not be your immediate thought when you see something not like the election of Donald Trump or whatever. Um, and figures like Robert Malone or Peter McCulloch, when we covered them recently on Joe Rogan, um, or even Joe Rogan, who's you know constantly bringing up the way that he's mistreated by the mainstream media and, and so on. But Malone and McCulloch both have these very elaborate tales of that they haven't received enough recognition, that they had revolutionary theories that could have you know prevented the pandemic, that they invented these world-changing uh, vaccine therapies and so on. And, and basically, the evidence does not line up in support of those claims, right? On, on superficial reading, they both have relevant credentials. And, and that's, that's part of the problem is like they, there is this thing where a lot of the alternative media will focus on, you know, how discredited academics or uh, politicians and so on are. And in, there might be plenty of things to agree on there. But at the same time, they have a real vulnerability to credentialism amongst, you know, experts. And the expert class, the academic class has just as many cranks and fringe opinion people as you know that you will find in other walks of life so i think that's something that people feel to appreciate is that you know having a phd or being a doctor does not inoculate you from having like conspiracy theories or or believing in alternative medicine treatments or that kind of thing there's a lot of people that do isn't there even a name for something like the nobel effect where there's this quality where where you know when someone will get a prize in in science you know get the nobel prize in science or whatever and then they go off the fucking deep end like i know the guy who was who pioneered the idea of doing mega doses of vitamin c to cure cancer I'm pretty sure he yeah. was a was a recipient of the Nobel Prize. So there's there's even like a name for this where maybe people who can be very successful in a very specific niche can just fly off the fucking rails. Yeah. Luc Montaigne is a guy that springs to mind. I think he died recently, but he he was somebody with like expertise, I think in molecular biology or virology. I can't remember the exacts of why he got the Nobel Prize, but he went on to, you know, heavily promote basically almost every pseudoscience that you can imagine. Yeah. Homeopathy, he was anti-vaccine and and so on. So it's yeah, there's Nobel disease is real. And I think it's a good reminder that, you know, having real expertise, having and being intelligent is not necessarily this protection against like falling into bad reasoning and, and conspiracy mongering. And Matt and I have one disagreement when it comes to grievance mongering that I include within it the tendency for people to have a 
a list of uh, kind of enemies and to, to <laughs> bring them up. Sam Harris, Sam, Sam Harris's list, his his kill list, his hit list of yes. of Glenn Greenwald. So Sam Harris will yes, <laughs> Ezra Klein, Glenn Greenwald, and, uh, Ezra Klein, Robert Wright, Robert Wright. Yeah, no, he just hates them. No, and and I he seemed so. Full disclosure: if the one guy of all the people who you cover that I still really engage with is Sam Harris, um. And I meditate with his app and his app has been so good for me. His, his app has just been fantastic, but his, you know, he makes this point in his app, which is you don't expect, oh, what was it? This, this will be a, a paraphrase, but you don't expect your plumber to have perfect beliefs. You don't expect your music teacher to be perfectly enlightened. So why would you expect the same of your meditation teacher? So I am, applying that same rationale to him <laughs> and being like no this is a this is a deeply flawed and sometimes very petty man like when when i was listening to your conversation with him on decoding the gurus i was just like in awe of his inability to concede anything i was in awe of his inability to just admit like yeah i have blind spots sometimes with people and and you know sometimes yeah. i can have some tribal instincts and you know anyway that's that's neither here nor there but he definitely does the grievance mongering hardcore yeah and with some you know like uh it's probably a point worth emphasizing is like you know we look at people as gurus but we 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 put them into you know the same broad category but we don't regard them as like flat it's part of the reason we developed the gurometer was to feel more comfortable with looking at the differences and sam harris is also someone who i respect and on uh, various issues and i think he does have he can have you know insightful points and part of uh, the reason that he can be an interesting character is because he's so stubborn and he's so single-minded that you know he's actually useful in in courses on morality and whatnot because he, he sticks out such extreme stances that yes. it's you know it's a useful comparison point i do think that despite thinking that he's you know he's been very good on on like the covid vaccines and he seems to have been pretty uh, good on on ukraine recently but he he has his blind spots and he has you know things that we would regard as gurish tendencies and i yes. think grievance mongering is is one of them like i i remember he had a conversation with Catherine uh page harden mm-hmm. page mm-hmm. Uh, uh the, uh, the geneticist ev- evolution geneticist yes. Yes, yes and and he was basically asking her to defend you know the takes of of like all these figures that he's had problems with and it, listening to it was kind of frustrating because you were just like but she, she why do you even think that she knows about you know your disagreements with these people so so yeah but then um, that's grievance mongering in a nutshell it's a very common feature and it just ties back to that kind of central narcissism that seems to be at the heart of a lot of this, like the anti-establishmentarianism, the cultishness, the galaxy brainness, like all of this seems to point back to, among other things, just gigantic narcissism. Yeah, yeah. So that leads us into our next um, garometer. Uh, dimension and as you say these things are connected oh there it is self-aggrandizement and narcissism (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, you know, it's it's connected, just like, as you said, to the grievance mongering, just like the anti-establishmentarianism is connected to uh, conspiracism. And, you know, these things are, occur on a spectrum. Um, in, in order to put yourself out there, you know, and put out strong opinions, you know, on a podcast like we're doing now, for instance, it demands a degree of self-confidence, right? Yeah. But to be a traditional spiritual guru, right, to, to create a cult, right, to be like Reverend Sun Young Moon or something like that, you need to be really, really, really confident, you know. You, you cannot express doubt. You can't say, well, you know, maybe – Maybe I'm the truth and the light, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. And uh, I guess we see the same thing with the secular gurus, and um, they're out there on that spectrum. Everyone's got little, uh, little kernels of narcissism inclined to a little bit mm -hmm. of self-aggrandizement, think we're a little bit better than we are. But, um, yeah, they're, they exist. You know, most people are familiar with Donald Trump, right? Like, so that's, you know, you can, you can see it. And... It is a personality flaw, but it's also a superpower. And we can, people are very familiar with seeing that in, in Trump. And that's also true with, um, our, our gurus. So yeah, in terms of the toxic ones, it's, you know, we, I, I personally think that narcissism is kind of, if you want to analyze their personality and what leads them to, to, to actually take up this role with such vigor then narcissism is the is the is the secret source that allows it to happen yeah absolutely yeah and then the next item on the list is a cassandra complex so i don't where does the term cassandra complex come from i'm not familiar with I, the term i feel that from you it comes directly from from you matt or yeah. i have to hand this to matt because he named it he takes responsibility he knows the this part better than me so so, so what is my, what is the source what is a cassandra complex well what for, <laughs> but first like what's the story behind the name cassandra like why is it a cassandra complex oh i'm glad you asked because christopher didn't know either when i yeah. first mentioned it um <laughs> it's it's this uncultured ancient, swine he's an uncultured swine that he is um <laughs> Um, so it's this traditional, um, um, you know, myth uh, about, um, you know, Cassandra, who was sort of cursed by the gods, right, to have uh, visions of the future, these terrible um, impending dooms that were going to happen, but was doomed to be ignored, right, to, to people not paying attention to them. And if you look at these gurus and how they talk about current events, then they very seriously project themselves as the the person who really must be listened to, um, it, and and in fact their ideas are absolutely crucial to avert this terrible catastrophe that's unfolding. We saw this yes. really clearly with COVID. I can't think of of a better example. But in general, um, you know, you, you take any of them from Jordan Peterson to. Um, 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 I don't know, Gadsad, um, they'll all claim that basically our civilization, Western civilization in capital letters, is going to hell in a handbasket, toot sweet, and we have to avert course, and they have the prescription on how to avoid this fate. Yeah, the first person who comes to mind for me is James Lindsay, 
who oh. is just like railing constantly. And for, you know, full disclosure, I interviewed his co-author, Helen Pluckrose, several months ago. And I actually like Helen. I don't know what I think of the book. I don't. I'm still figuring that out. I'm, I don't know what I think of cynical theories. I But as a person, I like her. I think she's really decent. I cannot say the same thing of James Lindsay at all. But he's he's basically like, unless we correct course, you know, he the impending apocalypse that is going to come from critical race theory is is going to be so devastating. We have to correct course right now. This is the primary threat to Western civilization and the subtext is and listening to me is the key because i know what's happening i know what the problem is and i know what the answer is and Mm. so that is the cassandra complex that you're talking about yeah that's that's an excellent um example and the contrast between helen pluckrose and james Lindsay is a good one so whatever one thinks of helen pluckrose um i don't think she's a guru right no i I agree scored i I think if we scored her she'd score low yeah and i agree if you and if you contrast her with James Lindsay, and James Lindsay has a uh, much higher profile now, is much more active. Um, He's too at- like it- every other minute, every other fucking minute he is tweeting. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, what do you fucking do with your life? Like, I it's, have a job. I have I have to work full time. <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible to parody, like, how extreme um, he's become. Um, and, you know, but that sells, doesn't it? Like, yeah. if, if, your, if your position was, hey, I think there's some silly things going on in academia. I think academics are wasting their time when they write some of these, you know, turgid articles that rely too heavily on capital T theory and not enough on... Uh, you know, robust evidence base, and it's maybe too influenced by their prior mm, political opinions, right? That's, you, you, you can you can argue that, you can take that position, you might yeah. get some traction, there's some people who'll be interested. Or you could do what James Lindsay has done and, and take it to critical theory is is a communism wrapped in a capitalism wrapped in a something else, right? And is, is actually <laughs> destroying the very fabric of our civilization. They're actually training he he's talking talks about groomers a lot now. He's claiming yes. that it's, it's it's bad. It's real bad. But but they always use the term existential threat. This thing, whatever it is, it's an existential threat. And I was just on a run. So I I was running earlier this week and I was listening to a, a Josh Zepps interview someone and this person he was interviewing, they were like analyzing how woke culture, She she's an, let me see if I can frame this. She is someone who studies abusive relationships, relationships, and she was talking about how woke culture follows some of the same trends of abusive relationships. And I'm like, okay, sure, you know, I'll hear her out. I, I consider myself moderately woke. So, but, you know, I'll hear it out. And then the very next breath is, and this is an existential threat to humanity. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I'm willing to hear you out. I'm, I'm willing to hear that maybe there are some dysfunctional trends in some parts of leftism. Like, absolutely. That is 100% true. I have encountered some pretty serious dysfunction in certain corners of leftist internet. Like, absolutely. But the moment we go from that, the moment we go from, you know, 
you know, uh, uh, despots with anime avatars canceling you on Twitter. The moment we go from that to this is an existential threat, or when we go from that to drawing parallels to the greatest atrocities of the 20th century, gulags and holocausts and firing squads, like we go from it, it's that's when it loses me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. I've, I've got a funny story. I was once in Canada where I was I was shamed by some woke people <laughs> in a hot tub. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I'm picturing this. I'm picturing this. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to provide any more details because it's better just like that. Um, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's, you know, that was irritating, but it's not the end of civilization. But um, I think the important thing about the Cassandra complex and the way it functions in terms of the social psychology of it is that in advertising terms, it's like the call to action, right? Isn't it? Right. Yes. It's 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 the motivating thing to, you know, um, bring you beyond mere intellectual engagement. It's sticky. It's and, it's and how you, you emotionally involved. Yeah. It it's it's the stickiness. It's what keeps you coming back to that creator, to that guru. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the 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 stickiness on the flypaper. So the next one is also fantastic, and I feel like p- ties into the Cassandra complex, which is revolutionary theories. I feel like these kind of go hand in hand. Like the revolutionary theories are the answer to the inevitable demise of civilization. Yeah, and it, I I one thing we want to emphasize with this particular concept is like. It's possible to be, you know, a contrarian or a public intellectual or whatever and have like some out there ideas, but revolutionary theories is different. It's presenting that you've developed a specific model, often with a name attached, that has the potential to, you know, revolutionize entire fields. And it's often accompanied without the relevant work that you would normally associate that with that, right? Like if you want to claim that you have an evolutionary theory that will completely upend our understanding of modern evolutionary biology, you, you should have a track record of, you know, publications and, and discussions and debates and empirical evidence. But the people don't, they don't have that. They, in, in the case of Brett Weinstein, who, who claims to have, you know, developed a, a thing that could revolutionize like the whole field of, of evolutionary biology and psychology. He has two publications over 20 years. That's not the track record of somebody that's going to revolutionize an, an academic field, let alone multiple academic fields. But it also isn't the case that you that you have to do this. There are lots of, of gurus who, who don't have their own like revolutionary theory. So it's one of those things that if you see it, it should be a warning sign. But it it is not the same as saying anybody that claims to have, you know, a grand theory or a uh, a kind of speculative idea that they should automatically be disregarded. It's more the level of confidence and the hyperbolic claims attached to their particular interpretive frame and tying in with the galaxy brain this, how willing they are to apply it across situations where it would seem ill fit, like uh, again, sticking with the Weinsteins because they're just paradigmatic in this Brett Weinstein analyzing the conflict with Germany in World War II and the what happened to the Jews through an evolutionary psychology framework and based on lineage theory it's you know it's it's pseudoscience and richard dawkins who is i was just about to bring honest. this up yes i sorry yeah. go on 
at Richard Dawkins is someone not averse in any way to understanding culture inside uh, society through an evolutionary framework. And he was on the stage when Brett Weinstein did that. And I don't know that we gain anything from looking at that kind of event through, uh, uh, you know, an evolutionary biological lens. And he was dead on. So it's, it's just an example that there is a difference there, right? Because Richard Dawkins is somebody that, that does have no issue with, you know, producing grand theories or promoting particular theoretical positions. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I was just thinking about that. And I forget what Richard Dawkins said. He, he said something like, I am familiar with this delusion or whatever it was. He, he said something really snarky in response. It was great. Um, and I, I, well, the other thing which I think is just important to flag in passing because it's so common, so prevalent, mm. is the comparison of yourself to Galileo, right? To, yes. It, it kind of <laughs> ties in. And it's like nobody has any, they've never heard of anyone else who had an idea that was vindicated, right? There's so yes. many other examples, but Galileo, that's it. And if, you know, if you're involved with skepticism or critical thinking, you know, there's the Galileo gambit, right? Which is everyone, yes. every conspiracy theorist, every alternative medicine, every supplement shilling person presents themselves as Galileo. So it's, that is another warning sign that's it's tied into um, the, the revolutionary theory stuff. Mm. Yeah, and it's um, just another connection with the other axis on the gyrometer. The that Galileo gambit is this is is linked to the grievance and narcissism in many ways mm. because they have this hugely inflated presentation of their own contribution or the, the, the you know the strength of their of their theory in a particular field, but they're faced with the problem that it is essentially unrecognized. Right, Eric Weinstein has this problem with his geometric unity. Okay, um, let's let's talk about geometric unity for a second because I watched that episode with Joe Rogan. I don't mean to interrupt, by the way, but I watched that fabulous episode with Joe Rogan where he, where Eric Weinstein tried to present his grand theory of everything, geometric unity, on Joe Rogan. And he created a URL for a, a, a that which was bringthatupjamie.com. Mm -hmm. And they were so mad about that. <laughs> and so the the conversation went south so hard <laughs> when Eric said, Jamie, go to bringthatupjamie.com. And it was a rundown of his theory of geometric unity that he had prepared for his appearance on Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan was like, looked at Jamie and was like, did you know about this? Did you know he was doing this? Has he run this by it? And it, it was, and, and the whole conversation just tanked and it was beautifully awkward. Anyway, sorry, yeah, I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> no, I'm glad you did. Like, you just made me think of... It's funny at, at, at how often the stunts they pull are so cringeworthy. Yes. Um, you know, like, Even the like name. Jordan Peterson. Intellectual yeah. Dark Web. Yeah, Jordan Peterson turning up to Joe Rogan in a tuxedo. Um, <laughs> um, like, anyone yes. with any social intelligence would kind of understand that um, Joe Rogan would not appreciate his internet research 
uh-huh. method uh, being undermined like that. Um, so I don't know. It's a, just an interesting little feature. Um, on it seems like a contradiction. In some ways, they are quite good at social manipulation. Um, a bit like Trump, really. Um, he seems to misstep so badly sometimes, yet at the same time is quite a good um, social manipulator. So that's a bit of a contradiction. I guess it's cont- um, he struggled, Eric, that is, struggled there. Um, look, in some respects, it's understandable. A physicist is always going to have trouble explaining some complex theory to a lay audience. But in the case of Eric Weinstein's geometric unity, it's been looked at by people with a solid background in the topic. He's never published any of it, of course. And the people who have looked at it with the expertise basically um, concluded that there is really nothing there. Yeah, There's right. an awful lot of hand-waving and um, gaps, essentially. But what you also see with Eric when, he, when he's explaining that is that he doesn't try to explain it to a lay audience. So if you take like a good scientific communicator, someone like, you know, um, Feynman, or, you know, the, the, there are many other sort of physics, physicists, Sean Carroll, like Stephen is, Hawking. Yeah. Yeah, Sean Carroll, um, Stephen Hawking, physicists who explain um, these concepts to a lay audience, and it can be done. Yes. But someone like Eric does not try because uh, in our view, that's not the point. The point is not to actually explain the ideas. The point is to baffle the audience with it's bullshit. To beat the galaxy brain. Yeah, and it's yeah. connected to the, this next dimension of the gyrometer, which is pseudo-profound bullshit. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> now th- this is actually a technical academic term. There are there are philosophers and psychologists who 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 study this, right? And it's basically it's it's defined as saying truthy, deep, uh, meaningful sounding stuff, but with actual, with no regard for the truth. Deepak Chopra is famous for his aphorisms that um, fall into this. But if you look at the actual, their actual discourse, the things that they say, yeah, they tend to focus on stuff that sounds good rather than stuff that means anything either true or false. So it's really a focus on, you know, this this part of the grometer is us paying attention to the language they use, how they express themselves, and whether or not they're saying these these truthy sounding statements that actually when you, you dig into it is it is either completely facile and superficial or self contradictory or or meaningless. So you have some examples here from Deepak Chopra One is, there are no extra pieces in the universe. Everyone is here because he or she has a place to fill, and every piece must fit itself into the big jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Classic truthiness. (laughs) There was a nice example recently. One of the gurus we covered is kind of from the the so-called sense-making sphere, right? Which is like a a spin-off of sorts. Was that um, Chris, Chris Williamson? Williamson? No, it was Jordan Hall. Jordan Hall. Okay. He's a much better sense maker than, uh, than Chris Williamson. Um, but so he—that's not a compliment, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know Jordan Hall actually. I will have to look him up now. He, we did an episode on him, and okay. it's one of our my favorite personal favorites that we did because he's such a, a kind of unique character. But I'll I'll just give you an example. This is a tweet from literally yesterday. Okay, this is something he tweeted. We need a new word. Tokenomics is so 2017. There is a third intrinsic that sits next to lore and vibe. It is currently called tokenomics. 
It includes the full ontology and the hard-coded agreements, as well as the incentive landscape thereby produced. Name? Question mark. And just to highlight what he wanted. So this is like just one or two of the responses he received. Somebody said, what about MAP? And instead of tokenomics engineer, designer, you'd have a map maker or cartographer. And Jordan responded, cartographer is nice, lower vibe cartography. But the problem is that here we are talking about the territory, the actual landscaping, and not about the map per se. Someone else suggests spine. And Jordan says, playing with spine, spindrel, weave. These are probably some great words in this space and, and so on. It's a litany, right? But it's, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> I have no clue what it's, any of that uh, means. It's, it's yeah. what you often say. What we heard on that episode of Jordan Hall was things where he would say, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who searches for truth. I seek truth. And and then we'll go into why that's an important <laughs> distinction. So, yeah, sense makers love these kind of word games. But it, you can see that it has the impression of of depth and intellectual complexity. Um, it it sounds like there's something there that you're just missing, right? That is actually very complex. But really, it's uh, pseudo profound bullshit. <laughs> I think Jordan yeah. Peterson yeah, yeah. is also guilty of a lot of that. Oh, very well. much so. Yeah, very much so. And it can be sometimes, you know, there's those examples are a little bit hard to pass because unless you're into crypto, in the case of Jordan Hall, you may not know what you know even even grasp what he's talking. I about. will never but, understand crypto. I've I've tried. I've watched lots of videos on it, and I'm, I've given up. I will never understand crypto. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely a happy hunting ground for pseudo profound bullshit. But you know, um, just to make it really concrete, um, Deepak Chopra is a good. Um, one to give simple concrete examples so you know to think is to practice brain chemistry <laughs> or it, it is the nature of babies to be in bliss like if you look at those statements they they are totally they they have no content like they 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 informate they they provide no new information whatsoever like it's trivially true that when one thinks that there is brain chemistry happening. That yes. is brain chemistry, but it, it it doesn't provide any real information. But if you're reading it, especially casually, and you're reading a lot of it, or you're listening to a podcast and you're having this kind of flow over you, it can you know it can give you the feeling that you're receiving profound insights when it's really saying nothing at all. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I I you keep hitting on something that I think is really important, which is like the flow, the barrage of information where it's so easy while listening to a YouTube video, like you're doing dishes and you're just listening to a YouTube video or you're listening to a podcast or whatever, how easy it is to just let this become almost like ambient noise or like furniture where you're kind of you're paying attention, but not really, and it's just washing over you. If you don't really listen closely, they will just slip things in there that if you actually stop and think about are just patently absurd. But because it's in this endless wash of, you know, usually someone who has good vocabulary and someone who talks an entire paragraphs, then it, it it's almost mesmerizing. So the next point here, sorry, did you have a, a comment on that? No, no, I, All right. we agree. We agree. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> All right. So then and the cons the next point which is conspiracy mongering also ties into that where the difference between I mean th this is also a matter of degree because Alex Jones is way more extreme than, you know, Brett Weinstein. However, 
one of the key differences is I think one of the reasons why Brett Weinstein gets away with what he gets away with is because he packages it in just like this endless steady flow of hypnotic words and interesting language. And he's always very subdued. Whereas Alex Jones is always about to have a hemorrhage on, (laughs) on his sound studio in his, in his studio. He's always about to uh, spontaneously combust, but there, some of the things that the two of them say on vaccines are not significantly different. There is not there is not much distance between Alex Jones and Brett Weinstein. The only difference, all else being equal, is tone. It is how they package it. It is the delivery. That is the only difference. I think you're completely right, Stephen. Actually, we have planned a special episode where we're going to take clips from Infowars um, alongside clips from the Dark Horse and kind of highlight that. Oh, I would love to hear that. Yeah. What they're doing is it's not just, you know, echoes of similar uh, themes. It's exactly the same. And an example that uh, springs to mind is that uh, Brett didn't, although advocated for strongly the anti-mandate mark right the kind of anti-vaccine rally that was framed as a anti-mandate march but he also didn't go there and he justified that by saying that uh, there were likely to be false flag violence at the event and that the movement needed somebody external who would be able to document that it was a false flag right and alex jones does that almost before every event you know involving patriot movements or whatever he implies that if there is violence it will be a false flag attack so it prepares his audience in case there you know something happens that there's a conspiracy readily and he can highlight that he made that claim beforehand but the conspiracy mongering is really common and it also you know everything that we talk about is on a spectrum like stock refrain when you raise conspiracy theories is like, well, aren't there some conspiracies that were correct? Look at the Iraq war and weapons of mass destruction or water create. And that is not what conspiracy theorizing is. It's not saying the world is devoid of all conspiracies. Of course they do exist. Conspiracy theorizing is a kind of different reasoning whereby the world events and essentially um, anything that you regard as, you know, that you disagree with is portrayed as being due to a shadowy conspiracy which is unknown to the public and involves you know usually an elite hidden group behind the actual powers that be and would require vast coordination that the likes of which we just don't see in the actual world and i think that the with the anti-vaccine stuff you you saw that being frequently invoked right that it it is not just the case that people are criticizing decisions that the cdc have made or the who it's rather that they they fit that into a whole schema that that everything is unreliable the death counts unreliable and the fact that those are replicated across all the countries right you don't you could completely ignore all the statistics from the us and you find the same patterns and that doesn't matter so that, that's an illustration that the the conspiracy worldview works as a kind of worldview defense that you can fit any fact into the conspiracy because anything inconvenient can just be 
the mainstream authorities, you know, pushing out their narrative or they're allowing these publications to come out to try to undermine what the, the truth. And if something gets through, if there's a preprint paper or there's a paper published in a journal which, you know, uh, supports in, in any way a kind of anti-vaccine narrative or it can be any conspiracy, you know, 9-11 or whatever, that becomes evidence that it that can be trusted and is correct. So it's basically the ability to fit everything in the conspiratorial model. And it fits with the grievance mongering tendency, whereby even minor things like your computer not working or having difficulty connecting cameras can come to be presented as perhaps you're not saying it is, but maybe it, it could be a targeted uh, attack from nefarious forces, right? It, it does go that extreme. So, so yeah, it, it, conspiracy theorizing is on the spectrum, but uh, in the guru sphere, it's it's almost the default explanation. And there's a hypocrisy at the heart of it where it's like all of academia is evil and against us, except when this one fringe thing that has the appearance of academia validates what I believe, in which case then we're for it. Mm. And, and so yeah. like there's a hypocrisy at the heart of it where they there's this obsession with credentials and the appearance of validity. If it doesn't agree with me, then it's evil and against me. If it does agree with me, okay, then great. That is proof that my fringe belief is accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem is compounded. I mean, conspiracy theories have been around for since forever, but um, in the modern sort of information landscape, you know, a lot of academic articles, a lot of scientific articles are available publicly. There's just a massive amount of information. So if you're a motivated thinker, if you've got strong um, opinions to start with, it's very, very easy to mm. troll through the internet or the primary literature and to cherry pick uh, evidence that supports your your pre-existing views. And we definitely see that amongst our um, so-called academics um, or ex-academics uh, in the gurus who seem to have forgotten or never learnt how to do a proper literature review, which involves actually reading all of the material. And it takes a strong background in the, the field to be able to read it properly and critically. And we, we often praise, for instance, uh, This Week in Virology, a podcast about viruses, but recently has focused on COVID. And you can see their modeling of how good like a genuine deals with, you know, does critical evaluation of, of papers. Um, and you can contrast that with what someone like Heather Haying or Brett Weinstein does. Uh, another good example, of course, is the, the lab leak uh, hypothesis. Now, that's, that's a legitimate point of yeah. view, right? It's, it, it's a point about where the truth is not known with certainty. Um, but you see among the proponents of the lab leak that they essentially engage um, and conspiratorial reasoning about the reasons. Um, it basically allows them to discard uh, any evidence that doesn't fit with their view. Yeah, that was that also was the point when Brett Weinstein lost me with the Dark Horse podcast because, and and it wasn't so much the fact that he was airing the lab leak hypothesis; it was how he was doing it that just felt very weird and uncomfortable for me. Like yeah. 
this is a massive international attempt to keep this leak from being, you know, exposed for what it is. And there's like this gigantic international effort to, you know, ensure that no one will ever know what the truth about this. But I have the truth about it. I'm like, okay, that is many degrees different from just saying, you know, maybe maybe this came from a lab. We don't know. We're still investigating. That's a possibility. Like there's a huge difference between that and then saying what Brett Weinstein was saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go, go on. That's yeah, that's that's a good example. Um, so actually, this is a bit of a plug for our podcast, I guess. But in our um, we, we do this decoding academia series where we where we go through papers that we like and, and talk about them. Um, and uh, coming up with there's a there's a nice paper by Stefan Lewandowski, who offers a, a nice kind of um, like structural description of how to detect and tell the difference between conspiratorial reasoning and and normal reasoning. And what you just described is a good example of it. So it's too technical huh. to get into now, but in a nutshell, um, a conspiratorial explanation generally or it, it is uh, an alternative, like um, a counterfactual view of the world, which, which might on the surface be somewhat plausible, but buried in it, is a whole bunch of corollaries, a whole bunch of other things that would also have to be true in, in order for this for this alternative view to be true. So in the case that you just gave, you know, all of the scientists, not not just the WHO, but you know, there's virologists everywhere. There's all yep. you know, all over the world. They're all um, on a Zoom all call have... together. They're all on Zoom together figuring out how to keep keep the truth from us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you don't need like deep technical knowledge to know that that is inherently vastly unlikely um so yep. you know th th these are good heuristics to to detect um conspiracism all right we are in the very last item here which is grifting what is grifting and i think we need a very clear definition of this one because everyone is a goddamn grifter according to people on the internet so what is your yep. definition of grifting yeah, that's that's a good point. And you know, these these things get used as a lazy slur a lot of the time. Um, we actually renamed it to profiteering just just oh, to I avoid like that. that. Cool. Yeah. And you know, it's important to distinguish it from just normal kind of monetization, I suppose, that people uh, do. Everyone and, go know, to my if, Patreon. If, Patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. <laughs> we have a Patreon and we, we, we love each and every one of our Patreons greatly <laughs> in a deep and personal way. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, there's so we don't want to include just normal monetization. If you write a book, it's, it's okay to get royalties from it. It's okay yep. to have Patreons. Um, it's okay to have advertising on your podcast. But what we see with the gurus is that, you know, they just do tend, they often tend to take it further, right? They, they do things that many people wouldn't do, like, um, you know, shilling these clearly useless health supplements. Um, uh, some, someone like Alex Jones is famous for it, but a lot of our gurus do that as, as well. Um, they, uh, JP Sears, for instance, talks quite explicitly about his, is another guru we, we've looked at, um, talks quite explicitly about his, um, his tactics and strategies for, for monetizing, um, his work in a quite a, a devious way. Um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, what else to say about grifting? Um, I, th I think the other thing I would say about it is that there's, there's a strong notion of personal gain, I think, involved. And it doesn't always have to be um, occurring in a straightforward monetary sense. But uh, many of the gurus seem to be aiming for a bigger a bigger role for themselves, right? A bigger platform, you know, Eric Weinstein would like to be invited and consulted on the White House. Um, Did he say that? Yeah. Um, he strongly. I'm uh, sure uh, he has. Pretty I'm, much, sure, uh, I'm sure he has said exactly <laughs> that. That is entirely in character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's so, implied um, that he wears a suit because he wants to indicate to the powers that be that he's ready to step into a <laughs> uh, leadership role. Which is it's not how that works. <laughs> you know, not how that yeah, works. That's why I'm wearing this shirt right now, just the signal, you know, <laughs> just in case. The, for the for everyone who's curious, for everyone who's curious, Chris showed up to this podcast wearing a tuxedo. It's been kind of weird. None <laughs> of us have chaps. I have not said anything <laughs> about it because I don't want to be rude. But <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I just took Jordan Peterson's advice the heart you, you should dress up for occasions. So, you know, I just feel nicer in a tuxedo. I never dress <laughs> up for occasions. I, I do the opposite. Um, all right. We did it. We got through all 10 features of the Garometer. And this is a really hel helpful tool. And uh, for anyone who I, is it okay if I post a link? I found, by the way, this Google Docs on your subreddit. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to have it or not, but I have it. Um, <laughs> is it okay? Okay, good. Um, and so I will post this uh, document in the show notes. Uh, for people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Uh, the easiest way is the uh, just you know from podcasting things decoding the gurus. We do have a like a Twitter gurus pod at gurus pod, and then the there's a relatively lively subreddit where where people criticize us or oh yeah they're they're complain. fucking ruthless. I love your <laughs> subreddit. It's great. Yeah, like yeah. so at the minute it's always you know with subreddit it's always dangerous where they will eventually end up but at the minute yeah, i think it's like an interesting place to to go look so yeah but uh the the podcast is probably you know if people find any of the things that we're talking about that's the the best place to go and just ignore the episodes that you don't want to look at <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for taking the time to hang out it's been great Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank yeah. you for platforming Cheers, our barometer. Oh, yes, my pleasure. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for this show. The theme song is called Wild by 11D7. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>